The Free For All Roundtable. Brought to you by Lexus Avon, Canada's newest Lexus dealer. Near Canada's Wonderland in the Maple Auto Mall. Luxury is closer than you think. Round one. On round one today, Sabrina Nanji is here with Queen's Park Observer, Matt Gurney, journalist, co-founder of The Line, which is an online magazine, and John Burnside, Toronto City Councillor and wordsmith, I might add. Let's start with uh, the person of the hour, actually the, the person of the nine o'clock hour today, but... Bonnie Crummy is our new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Let me start with Sabrina Nanji. That was the announcement on Saturday. Bonnie Crombie met with party executive members yesterday. Today, she's doing the media tour. And uh, I agree with uh, a lot I've read in the aftermath of her being selected. That was the easy thing, getting elected. Now she's got to restore a, a party that's still on its knees. Yeah, you're right. This is not going to be a cakewalk for Bonnie Crombie whatsoever, bringing the Liberals back to political relevancy, right? I mean, they've been in the penalty box since 2018. Uh, and, and you know, Bonnie Crombie really has her work cut out for her. I mean, it wasn't even easy for her to win the leadership uh, contest. You know, she, she eked it out on a third ballot and, you know, voter turnout was just under a quarter of those who were eligible to vote. So not only does she now have her work cut out for her, like, you know, uniting the liberals. She says she wants to create a big tent to go on the offensive against Doug Ford, but now she's going to have to go around, introduce herself to the province beyond the 905 in Mississauga, where she's very popular, uh, you know, raise money, something else she's she's uh, known for and been good at uh, compared to a lot of her rivals and, and take on Doug Ford. And I will say, you know, the number one rule of politics is define yourself before your opponents can define you. And we've seen both the New Democrats and the Conservatives just come out attacking her as uh, an elitist liberal and, and saying that she's out of touch with, you know, the needs of people. So certainly this is not going to be a cakewalk for Bonnie Crombie. But right now, I think she and, and the liberals are feeling galvanized and feeling good about her prospects. And John Burnside, you can take your analysis in any direction. But something I wanted to observe is uh, Doug Ford may not be her ultimate combatant. She's got to take out the leader of the NDP. Yeah, and you know what? Merritt Stiles is actually very impressive, and I'm not a new Democrat in any shape or form, but she is very impressive. I think the big problem for her is that, you know, when five years ago when Doug Ford was elected, he was really a malevolent leader. Uh, that's your word of the week right okay, there. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, Having or showing a wish to do evil to others. <laughs> um, but now he's really seen as this benevolent fellow, right? Uh, very well pardon me, well-meaning and kindly. Uh, I think the two caveats are if the economy really tanks or if there are any sort of criminal charges around the Greenbelt. But otherwise, I say people actually like Doug Ford. And I think that's really hard to overcome. I don't care how good Bonnie Crombie is or might be. Yeah, Matt Gurney, she's going to have to make the case of why we should change horses. And a lot of people are perfectly happy with the mayor they got. I think we had that kind of driven home in the last election. And, you know, I, I've written this often. And I'm, I'm going to repeat it here. You know, I don't get a lot of good ideas. When I get them, I tend to run with them. But in 2018, the Liberals had a story they could tell themselves to make themselves feel better, right? It was, well, we do it in power for 15 years. We had, we made some mistakes. We had a, a kind of a folksy leader like Doug Ford, malevolent or otherwise, who kind of came along. And it was a perfect storm. In 2022, the Liberals had no good 
good news story to tell themselves. Like, Doug Ford had gone out of his way for four years to give any opposition party all the ammunition they needed to beat him, and he ended up winning a bigger majority. That doesn't last forever. Every political party, every politician comes back down to earth eventually. That's just the circle of political life. But I think, uh, to the point the councillor has already made, it is not necessarily going to be Bonnie Crombie, who is the beneficiary of that here. And if you just zoom out a little bit, guys, you all know this, but the politically, uh, provincially, I should say, the Liberals are dead west of Ontario. There are no functional, viable Liberal parties left politically west of Ontario. And they look pretty dead in Quebec as well. Atlantic Canada is the only place they're strong. So I think over the next four, well, three years, really, we're going to get a sense of whether or not Ontario is going to be more like Atlantic Canada, where there will remain to be a viable provincial Liberal Party, or if we're tracking the way of Western Canada, where it'll come down to a two-party system between left and right. There is a lot riding on Bonnie Crombie right now, because that question's probably going to get answered on her watch. Bonnie Crombie will be live in our studios at 9.05. Okay, let's move on to uh, housing. And I was referencing this stat just a few minutes ago. I'm going to start with you, John Burnside, um, because a lot of this stuff falls under municipal purview. Investors now own more than 50% of Toronto's new condos, and that is distorting to the, the market to the point where the kind of housing we need to be built won't be built or isn't being built. And some of these people are squatting on properties and not even renting them. Well, yeah, and I mean that—that's a huge problem within this country is that people are investing in non-productive assets like housing, and not in the productive ones that actually make us competitive. And that's going to be a longer-term issue. But in terms of um, the the uh, the housing, the price of housing, the investors drive up the prices because they drive up the demand, um, and that's also been a, a function of low interest rates because they could meet those stress tests. There have been no stress tests for renting, and uh, so you can drive up the prices around. I think it's with the higher interest rates, we'll, we'll see a normalization. But let's not forget how expensive it actually is to build, right? And it's, you know, there's been inflation. Uh, we actually look at this at City Council all the time. Is it, you know, if inflation has been, let's say, 5%, construction inflation has been running at 10%. And so the, you're going to need a massive government infusion of money to actually overcome those construction uh, price increases that we've seen over the last 10 years. Matt Gurney, when you look at these these numbers, does it uh, is it a problem? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I have no problem with people owning a, a number of properties. I think, John, but you've already raised the point. So long as they rent them. And, you know, if people are hoarding properties and not putting them on the market, well, that's weird, economically speaking. But that actually also is, at a societal level, a problem. And I think market intervention uh, or government intervention, regulatory intervention, is justified at that point. But in general, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. We need so many homes in this country the idea that we're going to be able to raise the capital necessary to build what we need without tapping the private sector, without tapping private equity, is just a non-starter. We need to figure out how to structure the regulations so that we actually get the societal outcome we're looking for here. But there's no solution to this problem that does not involve landlords existing and landlords funding the development of new uh, homes. I don't think the government has enough money to do what's needed to be done. Sabrina, your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think I'm on side with my fellow panelists here. I mean, I do think some government intervention is is going to be necessary. If that's going to be enough, I don't know. It seems like we're already too far gone and we need some more drastic mem- uh, you know, measures. But I, I do think that this was a problem that was created by both the federal and provincial governments and even the central bank here. And so something really needs to be done because, I mean, for a lot of people my age, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, let's say, and, and I, even the dream of you know owning a home just seems something that is so far out of reach i mean it's not even it's not even something that i think about but maybe my kids maybe now the intervention will help the next generation let me stick with you sabrine on this next topic and that is a backlash in moncton new brunswick the mayor opted not to take the menorah out this year for hanukkah and while not saying so the thinking is it's because it would have it could have attracted trouble it could have ended up being vandalized so is it actually a cautious measure rather than, you know, the hatred of Jews? Yeah, I think what stood out to me on this is the explanation, which didn't really make sense. I mean, they seem to be citing, you know, the separation of church and state. And yet there's like a Christmas wreath on the on the door. So if you're going to do that, you know, be consistent. I mean, this seems more of a move to avoid, uh, you know, any potential vandalism or protests, which we've been seeing, you know, in the wake of the Middle East conflict. So this doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, put up the menorah. Give me a break. John Burnside, do we have a menorah at Toronto City Hall? That's a great question. I couldn't even tell you if we have an angel. Um, You know, I celebrate Christmas, but I'm not really that uh, religious. But this one really upset me uh, to the extent that if you think there's going to be vandalism and mischief, then you deal with that. You don't punish a specific group. And, you know, in the, I'm going to say 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, when the two primary religions uh, in terms of population were Christianity and and Judaism, um, no one was more embracing of Christmas traditions than Jews. And for us to sort of turn our back. Although Chinese restaurants aren't exactly a Christian tradition. <laughs> uh, fair enough. But, you know, in terms of uh, yeah, just in terms of their, you know, their just their whole attitude towards Christmas. Right. And, and, uh, and Christians celebrating it, um, you know. If we if there are there are angels in Moncton, then there have to be other religious symbols. If you want to get rid of the religious symbols, I don't see a, a wreath necessarily as a religious symbol. It's a, it's related to the holiday more than the Christian aspect of the holiday. But if you're going to have one religious symbol, then uh, you know, give me a break. Deal with the vandalism and the and the people who are causing the problems. And the wreath is actually for Saturnalia. But let's let's keep moving. That'll be a word of the year, I think. <laughs> Matt Gurney. I think Angels in Moncton would be the kind of book that would win a lot of Canadian literary prizes. Um, but I would say, look, seriously here, when I, w- my gut feeling when I first heard the story was exactly, John, the way you set it up, that it was probably going to be a security concern. My response was exactly what the counselors was, which was, well, in that case, you deal with a security problem and you put the menorah up loud and proud. But when I saw the government's response to this, that it was apparently about the separation of church from state, but you've got wreaths and angels out there that's not about maintaining the separation of church and state that's separating the jews from the state and there is a term for that when you (laughs) i know that we're we're throwing a lot of terms around lately and not all of them are being used with due consideration but coming down with a policy that puts judaism on a different level than christianity around the holidays is anti-semitism it may have been thoughtless anti-semitism it might have also been you know not not intended 
intended as such, but that's what it is here. Words have to mean something, and we have to be careful to use them properly, but coming up with a different standard for religious symbols for Judaism versus Christianity, favoring Christianity, not featuring Judaism, what the hell else can we call that? A new survey done in Canada and the United States finds that uh, a lot of people believe in conspiracy theories. Now, I think Scott Reed made a really interesting point earlier this morning in the morning brief at 6.20 that there's a difference between thinking that the moon landing was faked in a TV studio in Florida and other conspiracy theories, for example, that the vaccines are killing us. But still, what, you know, Matt, I'll start with you on this one as a journalist. What do you make of the fact that... Um, a good number of Canadians and Americans actually believe that we in the media are busy manipulating the truth. Yeah, we live in an era where uh, faith in institutions is low, and that includes us, uh, the media writ large. It also includes the government, large companies. Uh, I know I don't want to downplay the importance of this because I really, really am worried about it, but the explanation isn't hard. There has been a big backlash against power vested in big institutions. At this point, if you tell someone it's raining out, even if they're pouring and dripping wet, they're probably going to insist the sky is blue. I don't know what we do with that, but I'm not shocked to see it. And that's also why I'm not shocked to see it's more prevalent among conservatives than others. 32% of Canadians, 51% of Americans think that COVID was made in a lab. That's kind of hard to fight, Sabrina. Yeah, I think to Matt's point, this is sort of the result of, you know, the erosion of trust in our democratic institutions. And that's not only, you know, government, but also media. And I think, you know, social media in particular has a role to play here because it, you know, the proliferation of disinformation on on Facebook, for instance, I mean, just allows these sorts of conspiracy theories to fester. Uh, and so while, you know, I I was kind of depressed reading about how many Canadians are believing in conspiracy theories. I really wasn't surprised. Um, and that's why, you know, social media literacy is is more important than ever now. John Burnside, at the very least, Kathleen Wynne earlier on the show said she's still pro Sasquatch. Oh, well, that's uh, news. I missed that part of the segment. Uh, <laughs> thanks for updating me. Uh, I think the big problem is I have two people very close in my life um, who keep telling me I don't know what's happening and I need to watch Fox News. And that conspiracy attitude starts from the ground up. And, it, you know, if you keep hammering the message, you're not getting all the information. I think it erodes trust. Thank you all very much. Good to have you. John Burnside, Sabrina Nanji, Matt Gurney. It's time for the news.